You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Good evening and welcome to Mosaic uh, Church Austin. Uh, my name is Terrence Green, and I have one of the honors of serving as a deacon here um, at, at Mosaic. Uh, before we begin, I just want to thank Pastor Morgan and Carrie and John and Galen, uh, the elders of this church, for the opportunity to share God's word with you tonight. Uh, I'm very humbled by that opportunity. And I also want to welcome each and every one of you from wherever you're joining us from. Uh, if you're watching uh, on your computer or if you're watching on your phone, hey, feel free to type in the chat your name name and where you're watching from. Uh, No pressure at all to do that, uh, but if you want to do that, we would love to engage with you there. So uh, let's pray and let's get into God's word on this Good Friday. Father, in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, I just yield to you, Lord. I thank you for giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to perceive your word tonight. I thank you, Lord God, that you give us fresh eyes to see scripture that may be familiar to us, that you would breathe upon this word, that you will speak to each and every one of us in a unique and powerful way. We give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise for it in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. So here at Mosaic, we've been in an amazing sermon series on the book of Mark. And Pastor Morgan and other people have been teaching phenomenally about Jesus and his life in the book of Mark. And so today we have the honor of picking it up in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. Now, here's something I got to tell you about Mark chapter 15 that we're going to look at today about the crucifixion and the death of Christ, that what we see playing out in this scripture isn't something that just began in Mark chapter 1, but rather God had been working on this since before the foundation of the world. Because all throughout scriptures, the writers were pointing to what we're about to look at in Mark chapter 15, saying that Jesus was going to come as the, the last Adam, and Jesus would come as like this ultimate sacrifice, but Jesus would also come as the representative in the covenant between God and people. And as a representative, Jesus is showing up almost like a, a, a U.S. Olympic sprinter who just won the gold medal. Well, the entire nation didn't run in that race, but because the representative ran in the race and won, we all won. So it's similar to what we're going to see today. What Jesus won in his crucifixion and in his death, not only did Jesus win, but we all won. And so today, I want to look at how Christ's death is your victory. How Christ's death is, the vic- is your victory. It's a victory for you. And I want to look at that in three ways. First, we want to look at the vantage point of victory. Second, we want to look at the torn veil of victory. And then finally, third, we want to look at the cry of victory. And so we'll look at these in turn. We'll begin with the first one, the vantage point point of victory. Now, I'm going to let you know, I'm going to go kind of like line upon line because I really want to um, illustrate what's happening with Jesus here in Mark chapter 15. So I'll spend the majority of time on this first uh, point. 
So we, we, we're going to enter the text at verse number 33. But before verse number 33, in the first 32 verses, a lot is happening. We see Jesus before Pontius Pilate. We see Jesus before the Sanhedrin court, which is like this kangaroo court. They're questioning Jesus about his authority to be king. We see Jesus also being ridiculed and mocked by the Roman soldiers. And not only do they mock him, they literally take a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and the thorns are so sharp that they begin to penetrate through his skull. And not only that, they begin to beat Jesus relentlessly and they beat him with a whip that was about 18 to 24 inches long. And at the end of the whip, there were these sharp pieces. Sometimes it was glass, sometimes it was metal, but when they would strike Jesus, the, the sharpness would get into his flesh. And when they took it apart, his skin would literally come flying off. And they began to beat him and beat him to no ends. And, and typically for the Jews, they would only give you 39 lashes because by the 40th, a person would typically die. But for the Roman Empire, all bets were off and they would just beat you until you were near dead. And so we see Jesus being beat horrifically. Some accounts say that when people were crucified and beat before the Roman military, that they would be beat so badly in their backs that you could literally see their spines. And they would be beat so horribly in the front part that you literally could see their intestines coming out of those wounds. And they beat Jesus so horrifically that Isaiah prophetically looking at this moment in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14 said they beat him so bad that Jesus was beyond human recognition. Oh, but then they went a step further. They crucified Jesus, the Bible said, at nine o'clock. So they took these big sharp nails and they put it through his palms. And they took the nails and they put it through his legs. And on that cross crucified, the weight of gravity, the weight of his own body began to cause him to sink down, sink down so much that his wrists and his elbows began to come out of socket. And the only way to stay alive is that Jesus would have to inhale to come up for a minute and then go back down. You see, crucifixion will pull on your respiratory system. Often people would die in the crucifixion because they would suffocate. Their lungs wouldn't be able to get the oxygen that they need, this idea of asphyxiation. And so Jesus, here he is in excruciating pain. He's been beat and here he is on the cross just to get a millisecond of relief. He inhales. And he comes back down. And so now we enter the text after all of that has happened and we come in at verse number 33. And it reads this, from noon until three o'clock, it was dark all over the land. Now hold up, this is happening outside of Jerusalem. It's springtime and it's noon. Typically under these conditions, the sun should be shining. It should be beaming. But oh no, that's not what the text says. The text says that there was darkness all over the land. And that word land in the Greek is actually translated earth. So get this, the, the entire earth was covered with darkness 
Woo! This is a depth of darkness that this earth has rarely seen, but we get some insight to this dimension and depth of darkness in Exodus chapter 10. In Exodus chapter 10, that was the, the record of the ninth plague. It was the ninth plague that God sent to the Egyptians to push their hand to let the children of Israel grow. And it gives us a depiction of the depth of this darkness in Exodus chapter 10, verse number 21, and it reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift up your hand towards heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick you could feel it. Everybody say, feel it. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky, and a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. Now get this, the, the, the type of darkness that Jesus is experiencing here is a type of darkness that is so dark, you can tangibly feel it. So now watch this. Not only has Jesus been beaten relentlessly and almost till he's dead, they put him on a cross. And the only way for him to get a little reprieve is to inhale and to come back down. But the Bible says that in the midst of being on this cross, he was surrounded, the whole earth became dark. And not just dark, it became dark, dark. The type of darkness where you can literally feel it. It was tangible. He could touch it. So he is hanging on that cross. And when he comes up to inhale, he's going through all types of darkness he can feel it and he goes back down and he can't see to his right and can't see to his left all that he can see and all that he can feel is this deep deep darkness let's continue the text goes further it says this in the next verse it says that at three o'clock let me just pause and stop right here. <laughs> Some people try to dismiss this darkness by saying, well, this was just a solar eclipse. You know, the, the sun and the moon and those, they just collided. They came in front of each other. And that, no, 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 no. This wasn't a scientific uh, solar eclipse because a solar eclipse, the average solar eclipse lasts about seven minutes and 31 seconds. But according to Mark, this darkness that had covered the entire earth had been going on at least for three hours. This wasn't a solar eclipse, but rather this was a raging and a warring with all creation and a warring with hell that Jesus was about to deliver the one-two knockout punch to the Satan, to Satan and all of hell. But look at the, look at the text. Look what he says here. He keep going. He says at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And he said this, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabbatni, which is Aramaic, he says this, it's translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Bible says that he cried out in a loud voice. That word loud is the Greek word megas. Megas is where we get our English word mega. It means large. It means great. It means enormous. So now get this. Jesus has been beat beyond human recognition. He is crucified on a cross with nails through his palms and nails through his legs. And the only way to get some reprieve is to come up and go back down. And not only that, he is on the cross and he's wall to wall in with a darkness that is so thick that you can 
feeling. But now this verse said things go from worse to horrifically worse because not only is he on the cross in darkness, but now he's forsaken. Now he's all alone. Now he's isolated and he's all by himself. Now he is, he, is, he is in a place that he has never been before. He is now separated or disconnected from his father. All throughout eternity, Jesus was in sweet communion with the father. All throughout eternity, Jesus was in sweet communion with the Holy Spirit. But now Jesus has been literally separated from God. Why? Jesus was separated from God so that you would never have to be separated from God. So literally right here, when Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? He literally becomes the manifestation of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, for he made him to be sin who knew no sin. At this moment, Jesus was being made your sin. Jesus was being made my sin. At this moment, Jesus was being made your failure, my failure. Jesus was being made your shortcoming, my shortcoming. Right there at that moment, in all of that darkness, the weight of the sins of the world were placed on Jesus and he was separated from his father. He experienced the wrath of God so that you won't have to experience the wrath of God. And he took it on for you and he also took it on as you so that you wouldn't have to experience it. He cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's keep going. The next verse, the text says this. It says in verse 35, when some of those who stood by heard that, they said, oh, listen here, Jesus, he calling for Elijah. No, man, he ain't call for Elijah. He said LOI, but they thought he said Elijah. And one of them ran and they took a sponge and they filled it with sour wine and they put it on a stick and they gave it to him to drink. And he said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. The Bible says here in this, this last part of this verse, it said, then Jesus gave a loud cry and he gave up his spirit and he died. It says here that Jesus somehow mustered up enough strength, enough energy, enough wind to come out one last time. And I would imagine if his tear ducts were still working, that he had tears streaming down his face. His very last time, he comes up with one more last cry, and then he died. Well, here's the thing. Mark said he had one last cry. Well, 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 Mark, I like Mark. I like reading Mark because Mark just gets straight to the point. The brother's writing with brevity. He like, look, this would happen. That didn't happen. This happened. And so I can appreciate that. But sometimes when you're writing straight to the point, you can forget some of the nuance, some of the context, some of the details that happen. And so the beauty of the Bible, particularly the, the four gospels, is that you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in concert, and you can get the comprehensive picture of what happened. Well, if we go over to John's account of this, you know, John saying, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. I was right there. John says, not only did he cry, but he said something in the midst of that cry. Oh, get this, y'all. Before he died and he gave up his life, they didn't take it. Before he gave it up, he said something. So the question is, what did he say? 
Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to look at John chapter 19, verse number 30, and it says this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his life. John gives us insight here. Not only did Jesus muster up enough strength to cry out one last time, but when he came up, he cried out and said, it is finished. And he gave up his life. Now, it is finished is the English translation of what he actually said. What he actually said was the Greek word is not three words, but it's one word. The word is tetelestai. Repeat after everybody say tetelestai. Oh yeah, I, I can feel you through the cameras. Tetelestai. Jesus saw his last words. He says tetelestai. And he gave up his life. The word tetelestai is, a, is a, just a powerful word. It has multiple meanings. It means to bring to a completion or a conclusion. It means to accomplish. It means to fulfill. It means to finish. It means that it has been paid in full. It means to mark a turning point when one period ended and a new period began. But now here's something that is just so awesome, is that the word tetelestai has another meaning. The word tetelestai was used very commonly during Roman warfare. So the Roman military understood this term very well. The word tetelestai, what, what would happen is that a general, a Roman general during times of war would be at an elevated place. They would be at a mountain, the pinnacle, uh, this crescendo, this high place. While they were up here at that high place, they had a vision. They had an oversight, a supervision. They were able to see every nook and cranny in detail and everything that was happening on the ground during the time of war. But the foot soldiers, they were on the ground. They were embedded in the battle. They were the ones that were experiencing the attacks. They were the ones that were engaged in warfare. And because they were on the ground and so engrossed in it, they didn't know if a battle had been won, if the battle was over, because they were so enveloped and surrounded in it. And so the only way that the foot soldiers knew whether or not the battle had been won is that they would have to listen out for the general to holler something. And when the general saw that the battle had been won, that the attacks had been eliminated, the general would holler down from on high, Tetelestai, Tetelestai. Tetelestai. And so soon as the soldiers who were engaged in battle heard Tetelestai, they knew no matter what battle they were in, no matter attack or, or attack that they were in, they knew once they heard the general shout Tetelestai that the victory had been won. And I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know what battle is facing you. I don't know what attacks from the enemy are coming your way. I don't know what darkness is trying to surround you, but you've got a general from on high and his name is Jesus and he's hollering Tetelestai, Tetelestai, Tetelestai. He's hollering Tetelestai over your family, Tetelestai. 
Tetelestai over your marriage. Tetelestai over your community. Tetelestai over your finances. Tetelestai over your physical body that is healed. He has won the war. He has paid it in full. And he has given you the victory. Tetelestai. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Woo! With his very last breath, <laughs> he had to let you know that it was finished. With his very last breath, he had to let you know, I don't care what it looks like. I don't know what you're feeling, but I got the supervision, and this thing is over. You're victorious. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Oh, woo! Thank you, Jesus, to tell us that. And so now Jesus has given you the victory. And so now through Christ's death, your waging in the warfare is to be connected to the king and to the general to hear what saith the Lord. And what saith the Lord is to tell us that. Woo! So point number one in understanding that Christ's death is your victory is to understand that you have the vantage point of victory and that vantage point is one of Tetelestai. Oh, but the scripture continues and gets even better. Let's go back into the text and look at the torn veil of victory. Look at verse number 30, uh, 38 and it says this, the veil, very next verse, very next verse. So Jesus says to Telestai, he gives up his life. And then that's 37. Then in verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn from the very top to the bottom. Now, I was with you, my brother, when you were talking about the Telestai. Now you're talking about veils and stuff torn. This don't make no sense. All right, let me go help me make it some sense. All right, so you got to understand the structure of the temple for this verse to, to, to really hit home, convey what Mark is trying to get you to see here. So the temple had three major components, areas. There was this outer court uh, you know, the, 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 the Romans, Jews, and Gentiles could come in out of court. There was this intercourt or this holy place. And then there was a third dimension called the holies of holies. Now, the veil was the thing that separated the inner court or holy place from the holies of holies. Now, we ain't talking about like, you know, uh, 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 you know, a dollar and 47 shower curtain that's just like paper thin. We're talking about a veil that's 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. And so that veil, the veil was the thing that you had to go through to get to the holies of holies. But now, why would I want to get to the holies of holies? What's back there? What's behind the veil? <laughs> well, several things were behind there, but one of the main things was the Ark of the Covenant or the presence of God. So in other words, you had to go through the veil to get to the presence of God. But now here's the thing. Couldn't any of everybody just walk up behind the veil? Only one person could go behind the veil, and that was the high priest. So once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, could go behind the veil. And when the high priest cleansed himself and went behind the veil, he offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. He offered the sacrifices, the blood of bulls and the blood of goats. But now here's the thing. High priests had to go back every single year. Why? 
because the blood of bulls and the blood of goats was not a sufficient enough payment to eradicate your sins and to save your life. So he had to come back every year. It's almost like having uh, a credit card with $50 million balance on him. And you're paying the month. You're not even paying the monthly minimum. You're paying like $7.42 every month. <laughs> you're not even hitting the principal, the interest. You're going to be paying on that credit card forever. Why? Because the payments that you're submitting are insufficient. The payments that you're submitting can't cancel the debt. And so the, 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 the veil now is that thing that you have to go through. But now here's the thing. Verse 38 says that after Jesus died, the veil was torn. What does that mean? Jesus, your high priest, went and sacrificed not the blood of bulls, not the blood of goats, but the precious blood of Jesus. And he offered that as a sacrifice for your sins. And when the father saw that, he says, paid in full. That is enough. That is the payment that we need. And once that happened, the Bible says from the very top from heaven, boom, down to the earth, to the ground, that which separated you from the presence of God was torn. That which restricted you from the presence of God was torn. That which caused the presence of God to be excluded from you was torn. It was torn because the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, his life and his blood was paid to open up a way for you to have unfettered, unrestricted access into the presence of God. Why? Because that is where you belong. That you belong in the presence of God. You know, when I think about this, it makes me think of a guy that I know in Michigan named David. David, uh, he, he works in Detroit, but he actually lives in Flint. And he had been doing and still is doing some amazing community work in Flint, even before uh, the water crisis hit. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Flint. David's work had been um, making such an impact that he got invited to the White House to meet President Obama. You know, so David, you know, your brother, he get to meet the first black president. He's excited, but he's really nervous. And so we pick the scene up. He's standing outside of the Oval Office. David's like, man, I'm, I am nervous. I feel jittery. I feel like an imposter. Like I really don't belong here. I'm, I'm, you know, my stuff is good. I've been doing, but it ain't all that. You know what I'm saying? You start, you start making excuses about why you shouldn't be here. So that was David. He's jittery. He's like, I don't even know what to say to President Obama. And as he's going through all this, before he knew it, the door to the Oval Office, it swung open. The door, the door, that which represented the way through to this place of power, that which represented this place, the, the way through to this person of power, it swung open. And before David knew it, he looked up and he was eyeball to eyeball with President Obama. Oh, he's nervous. Oh, he's shaking. He's fearful. Oh, he's like, man, I really don't belong here. He, and besides that, he's like, I don't even know what to say. What do I do when I see him? Do I shake his hand? You know, do I dap him up? You know, do I, you know, we fist bound? You know, he's like, I don't know what to do. And so President Obama is seeing the nervousness on him as he's approaching. And the two are coming to walk into each other. And before David could say anything, he said, President Obama spoke three words 
that forever changed his life. And it eradicated all of the imposter syndrome. It eradicated everything that made him feel like he wasn't worthy and that he shouldn't have been here. President Obama said these three words. He said, you belong here. He said, you belong here. And once David heard those words, he said a sense of boldness, a sense of confidence came on him. Why? Because this person of power in a place of power told him that this is where he belonged. And I believe that soon as Jesus paid the price with his life and when the father rent that temple from the top to bottom, he was opening it up to let you know that the presence of God, this is where you belong. The presence of God is where you belong. I have always longed to be in you and with you and around you. I've always wanted to fellowship with you and I'm tearing down anything that separated you from me, anything that restricted your access to me. You belong here in the torn veil of victory tells you that you have a place with your father in his presence. And some of you maybe watch me like, I hear what you're saying, bruh. But you don't know what I did. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes I've made. You don't know, you, 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 if you knew all the stuff that I've done, you wouldn't be saying I belong there. But oh, this, this, you do. Because how? Not because of anything that you've done, but it's what he has done and he has given to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, the end of that verse says, For he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God. God in Christ Jesus. So in other words, Jesus took your sin and he gave you his righteousness, the great exchange. So when the father sees you, he sees you through the blood of Jesus and he sees you through the righteousness of Jesus and he sees you as justified. He sees you as acquitted. He sees you just as if sin never happened. And so he said, come boldly to this throne of grace. So we've got the vantage point of victory the torn veil of victory, and finally, the cry of victory. The cry of victory, verse 39, says this. It says that so when the centurion who stood opposite of him, opposite of Jesus, saw that Jesus cried out like this, and he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, a centurion was someone who was over a hundred soldiers, the best soldiers in the military, Roman military. And it is suggested that you had to work your way up the ranks. At least 15 years of service you had to put in before you became a centurion. And crucifixions were a part of the, the Roman Empire. I read somewhere that up to 30,000 people had been crucified prior to Jesus. So him seeing Jesus crucified was not an anomaly. It was not an aberration. It was not a unique experience. And in fact, the, 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 uh, the centurions, they played a critical role in most crucifixions. So it is easy to suggest that he could have seen tens, hundreds, or even thousands of crucifixions. But this is interesting here. The Bible said that he stood opposite of Jesus. But now when you read the original text in Greek, and even when you read some of the other translations, he was either standing like next to Jesus or he was standing in front of Jesus, but he wasn't standing opposite of him. 
what does this word mean? The what the text is saying that he stood opposite of him is the Greek word. It means this. It means he was against Jesus. He was opposed to Jesus. He was contrary in principle and in practice. He was set against Jesus and he was averse to Jesus. So in other words, the text is saying, this text is not talking about his physical location, but it was talking about his spiritual location. He was physically close to Jesus, but he was spiritually distant from Jesus. His heart condition and disposition was far away from Jesus. But now here's the thing. What can get a person who is opposed to Jesus, who is averse to Jesus, to realize and say that this man was the son of God? Well, you go back in the text. It said that when he saw the way that he cried. When he saw the way that Jesus cried, it was the cry of Jesus that moved this man who was in opposition to him to realize that he is the son of God. Now, I, my wife and I, we have two daughters, one eight months old, another one is three years old. And there is a lot of crying in our house on a daily basis, a hourly basis. Let me be honest, from minute to minute, there's crying going on in the house. But there's levels to the cries. You know, there's a cry that's just, you know, I'm whining. and It's not really a cry, I'm whining. There's another cry, I'm crying, but I'm just crying because I'm angry or I'm sleepy and I don't know how to communicate. But then there's another cry. There's a cry that comes from the deep down in a child where you hear it as a parent, it moves you. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, our oldest daughter, she was walking down the steps. She slipped down the steps and she let out a cry that was so loud that me and my wife, we both moved. It jumped us up. We moved out into this place of action. And I believe this is the type of cry that the centurion heard. He heard a cry of Jesus that was so profound, that was so resonant that it moved him to recognize who Jesus actually was. And my question to you is this, are you the centurion? Are you opposed to Jesus? Or are you the centurion where you've close to Jesus, you've been close, but you're distant in your heart? Well, whether you are the centurion that you're opposed to him spiritually, or you're here and you're close, but you feel distant, you had some proximity with him before, I want you to know that Jesus is crying out to you. He's crying for you. He's crying to you to let you know that to tell us die, he has finished it and paid the price for your sins and for your life. He is crying out to you that the veil of the, the, the veil has been torn from the top to the bottom. So you have unfettered access to his presence. And he's crying out to you today to let you know that he wants to be your savior and your king because he paid the price for you. And my question is, can you hear his cry? And if you hear the cry of Jesus, let's respond to it. So I just want to pray for you. Father, I just pray for each and every person here that hears your cry. I ask that you would touch them in a fresh and mighty way. Overwhelm them with your goodness, your grace, and your love. We give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. And we remember that we have victory through your death because the vantage point of victory the torn veil of victory, and the cry of victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.